So this uh, this is part of a uh, series of uh, podcasts geared towards the uh, young urology community that includes urologists within uh, 10 years of practice, as well as urologists uh, in their training, residency and fellowship. My name is Kyle Richards. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, also, I'm the chief of urology at the William S. Middleton Memorial VA Hospital here in Madison. In this webinar, we'll focus on understanding coding and reimbursement geared towards young urologists. Uh, really an important topic as uh, young urologists enter into the workforce. It's really critical to understand how coding and reimbursement works so that we all can get paid for what we do. So I just want to thank and acknowledge one of my mentors, Dr. Norm Smith. And when I was a fellow at the University of Chicago, he's really the one that got me interested in health policy, specifically as it relates to coding and billing. He's currently the uh, American Neurologic Association's RUC member, which later on in the talk, I'll speak more about the RUC as, as well as the RUC process. But he was the one that really my training got me interested in, in coding and reimbursement so that I could better understand how it works and, and, and then subsequently not be so intimidated by it because it can certainly be an intimidating topic uh, to uh, think about uh, in addition to everything else we have to know in urology. So for this webinar, I'm going to talk about how uh, diagnoses uh, are coded um, and we're going to focus uh, on really some tips and pointers relating to coding uh, the diagnosis, as well as uh, coding of the service provided, whether that is uh, uh, CPT uh, or ENM, and we'll get into what these abbreviations are later on uh, for those of you that that don't know. And then we'll we'll get into how all this gets translated into a fee that subsequently is paid for by the insurance company, and that's where the resource-based relative value scale. Uh, comes into play. And then CMS, which is the largest payer in the United States, that's Medicare and Medicaid, uh, determines the appropriate fee. So the first part we'll talk about is coding of the diagnosis. And this happens really in every patient encounter, uh, every surgery, every discharge, every ER visit. It really, each of these uh, visits have to have a diagnostic code so that a bill can be submitted by the hospital, by the clinic, uh, or the individual provider based upon where, where you are practicing, what your practice situation is like. And uh, the diagnosis is captured by using one of several codes from the International Classification of Diseases, uh, or ICD for short. And uh, the ICD really it, what it does is it tracks uh, all office visits, surgeries, admissions via diagnosis codes. It's been around for a long time. We're currently on the 10th edition, but the first edition was actually called, called the International List of Causes of Death, and that was created in 1893 uh, because back, back in the late 1800s, medicine was very concerned in, uh, in identifying and, and, and tabulating the causes of death. Uh, and then the World Health Organization, or the WHO, took over in 1948 uh, for the sixth version, 
And that version starts to incorporate uh, other things like morbidity. So member states use the most current revision for mortality and morbidity statistics. And ICD-10 was endorsed in 1990, so 29 years ago, but really only came into use about three years ago in the USA, and, and that was in October of 2015. ICD is used to identify global health trends, so it's used all around the world, and it's the diagnostic classification standard for really all clinical and research purposes. For those of you that do research, we use a lot of these codes to, uh, when we're doing health services research, uh, using claims databases to, to uh, categorize patients based on a certain set of diagnostic criteria. And for those of us that do, do this type of work, October 2015 is, is really an important, an important month because that's when ICD-10 was in, in, enacted in the U.S. and that sort of mess with a lot of our research algorithms uh, because of the change in the coding structure. So what exactly is the International Classification of Diseases, or ICD? Well, it defines the entire universe of diseases, disorders, injuries, as well as other health-related uh, conditions. It's meant to be comprehensive as well as hierarchical and used to observe reimbursements and resource allocation trends. This next uh, slide shows just the comprehensive nature of, of ICD-10, uh, and you can see uh, the, uh, uh, this is just an example of a screenshot from ICD-10. It shows that uh, uh, ICD-10 is very specific. For instance, there's a specific code for foreign body in the urethra, T19.0 and foreign body in the bladder, T19.1, foreign body in the bulb and vagina. So it's become very specific. Um, and that, that has a lot, you know, created some confusion, I would say, but uh, it's meant to be more uh, uh, specific and granular. Uh, and for instance, bladder cancer uh, has nine different codes for bladder cancer that vary based on the location of the tumor. So in that sense, it's become much more granular uh, as we transition to ICD-10. This is just an example. Uh, I tend to memorize a few of my most common diagnoses that I use. Uh, you can also use other search engines to, to find these codes, uh, and coders uh, in general have urology-specific codes that are readily available. So if you're ever having trouble finding certain codes, you can get a list from your hospital or clinic uh, coders but uh, these are some of the common codes that, that I use and I just have them sort of memorized so that when I'm uh, uh, putting it in a patient's uh, electronic health record, I don't have to search real long for these. So moving from coding of the diagnosis, the next important concept to understand to make sure you're billing appropriately is how to code the service you provided. As urologists, there are two main clinical services that we provide. Number one, seeing patients in clinic, and number two, doing surgery or procedures. When we see patients in clinic, to code the service provided, we use a series of evaluation and management codes, or E&M for short. 
when we use the E&M codes, the amount we bill for does correlate with the amount of work we do for each patient. And to capture this work, we have to document our notes in a certain way so that if an insurance company audits our notes, we've met certain criteria that satisfy what we build for. Now, if you want to document uh, or, or code based uh, on time, you can do so as well. And if you do that, as, as you'll see later on, there's different uh, documentation criteria. So this, if you plan to build based on what you document, this, this table and this slide is very important to understand and wrap your head around. And what this table shows is for a new patient visit, there are currently five levels that you can bill for. And the, the specific five-digit code for each level is a 9920X, where the X would be a one, a two, a three, a four, a five. So level one through five visit. And you must document everything listed in the yellow rows here, everything listed in the red row, which is for the physical exam, and two out of the three green rows here, which represent the documentation for decision-making. And that's the required documentation that you must meet to build for each level. So for a level three or 99203, you have to hit four or more uh, features for the history of present illness, a review of systems has to touch on two through nine. You have to hit one of the past medical, family, or social history. For your physical exam, you have to do a detailed physical exam, but only two of seven systems. And then for your medical decision-making, it's more of a limited uh, and low level of risk type of a situation. Uh, and you have to complete um, all three of these for new patient visits, the yellow, which is the history, the physical exam, and then the medical decision making. So what are, what are for that yellow box, the history of present illness? So what are some of the elements? Uh, how do you, what are, what are coders looking for in your notes um, to satisfy the documentation criteria? Well, we need to, these are the things we learned in medical school. So location, left kidney is an example. So, and I use specific, I, I say specifically in my HPI, the location is the left kidney. The quality is colicky pain. The severity is high-grade prostate cancer. The duration is one month. The timing, hematuria started after a kick to the groin. The context, there's no evidence of metastatic disease. Modifying factors, so what makes it better or worse? And then what are some associated symptoms? And I make it easy for my coders. I specifically use these terms here, location, quality, et cetera, so that the coders can, when they're looking at my notes or if an auditor is looking at my notes, it's very clear that I'm hitting these elements of the HPI. What about the uh, review of systems or the physical exam? Well, these are the specific elements uh, that are options for documentation. Uh, it is okay to say that you did a complete 12-point review of systems which was obtained, it was negative, except as otherwise stated in the above history of present illness. So you can do that. Or if you have um, the patients filling this out in an intake questionnaire, you can certainly reference that uh, and that you reviewed it. And, and that would certainly um, satisfy that requirement for the review of systems 
in the physical exam. And there are certain um, elements that are only for the review of systems like endocrine or allergic, because uh, obviously there's no physical, really a physical exam system for, uh, for, for allergy uh, or endocrine. Um, now, th this, is, this table is similar to the previous table I showed you for the new patient visit, but this is for an established or return visit. And similarly, there are currently five levels that you can bill for. You must document, uh, in, in, and this is in contrast to the, the new patient visit where you have to have three out of the three key components. You must document at least two out of the three key components. So history, exam, or die, uh, medical decision-making, you have to get two out of the three. So really the documentation and criteria are less strict for return visits versus new patients. And that makes sense because you're in general doing less work for an established patient than for a new, new patient. Now, if you would rather code based on time spent with a patient and not have to think about how you do your notes, that is also currently allowed. Now, you must use specific language in your notes. And then the language is what I've included here in quotations. So you, and I, you must actually, a lot of people with electronic health, health records will have dot phrases or smart links to be able to just incorporate this into their, their documentation, but you must save a total of 15 minutes were spent face-to-face -face with the patient. Over half the time was spent on counseling and coordination of care. And there's no specific documentation requirements for the history exam and medical decision-making. So you can structure your notes any way you want to. Uh, you just have to make sure that you have an attestation about the time. Now, I've heard you're more likely to get audited if you bill based on time. So if you do choose to do this, certainly be vigilant with your times. Look at your clinic schedule. If you, you know, nowadays, if your health system is is requiring you to see lots of patients in shorter and shorter amounts of time, uh, billing based on time might not be as uh, efficacious. Uh, but if you are able to structure your clinic where you have lots of time to spend with patients, then it might be make more sense to to, to bill based on time. So this table shows the time criteria for all of the return visits, as well as uh, new visits or new consults. You can also see in the far right column, the corresponding work RVU for each of the ENM codes. And I'll just point out a few things. So as the level of the code increases, so does the time. So a level three return visit is 15 minutes. A level three new visit is 30 minutes. A level three new consult is 40 minutes. And what's the difference between a new visit and a new consult? Well, a new consult, you, when you're documenting, you have to say, this is a consultation from Dr. So-and-so for this problem. So you have, to, there's, you have to mention that it's a consultation in your note, but it's essentially the same as a new visit. And um, um, some uh, payers don't pay for consultation visits, specifically Medicare uh, does not. Uh, currently pay for a new consult visit. So those would all be new visits if the patient has Medicare as their primary insurance. And then the RVUs also increase as the uh, level increases, which corresponds to more uh, physician work. So I thought I would give a specific example 
of the uh, of the minimum documentation right documentation criteria required for a level three return visit. So remember, for an established patient visit, you have to hit two out of the the, the three uh, requirements. So for if I was doing a, a a level three return visit for a patient, chief complaint would be kidney uh, could be kidney stones. My HPI would say something like a 78-year-old male. You're in follow-up with kidney stones. And to hit the one HPI, all I have to say is he denies any associated symptoms of flank pain. I need to hit one review of systems to satisfy the level three. So genital urinary, no hematuria or lower urinary tract symptoms. Uh, for physical exam, uh, problem-focused exam of a minimum of two uh, system, so I, I can satisfy that with a general exam, no acute distress, abdomens, non-tended, non-distended, no CDA tenderness. And then since this is a straightforward patient, we don't really need to hit anything uh, of note for the uh, doc, uh, medical decision-making. So kidney stones is the assessment plan is doing well, dietary stone recommendation discussed, patient said either went forward, declined a metabolic stone workup and returned as needed. So this is just an example of how you might think about documentation for to satisfy the documentation requirements for a, a straightforward level three office visit, which which is a pretty common office visit in, in neurology practices. Okay, so now we can transition from coding office visits to coding or billing procedural services. To code procedures, we use current procedure terminology or CPT for short. Every procedure we perform from office cystoscopy to a pelvic exoneration have separate CPT codes with different global periods and different differences in reimbursement attached to them. So it's important to understand the CPT codes that you as a provider are commonly using, what the RVUs are, or the reimbursement, as well as what the global periods are. So CPT is a registered trademark owned and maintained by the American Medical Association. It's used to report services for payment by CMS as well as other third-party payers. So CMS uh, is the main uh, payer in the United States, uh, but every, almost every other third-party payer also uses CPT codes. The first edition was published in 1966, which focused on surgical procedures. And in 2000, it became the official standard of reporting uh, physician services as part of the final rule. And that was in response to the, the uh, HIPAA Act of 1996 that required the development of standards for electronic data storage and transmission. And to understand the different CPT codes that are out there, we should really take a step back and understand the CPT process, which is a, a very highly regulated process. As there's three, this table just shows uh, that there are three different categories of CPT codes. And the main one that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis are category one CPT codes. And these are the procedures that are deemed to be within the scope of medical practice in the US. The effectiveness of these services is well supported by the literature. 
and it's not a fragmentation of an existing service or reportable by one or more existing codes, the parts of these codes have received clearance from the U.S. FDA. Category two codes are really supplemental tracking codes that are used for data collection and, and, and in regards to quality of care. They're optional codes and RVUs are not associated with category two codes. And the other sort of interesting category are category three codes, which are temporary codes that have come about due to emerging technology uh, and uh, procedures. The data with these codes are used to uh, help with the FDA approval process and uh, so these are uh, codes that arise when, when newer procedures or technologies are coming about as part of the process. So the CPT has a significant regulatory process that's regulated by the editorial panel. The panel is responsible to discuss issues associated with new and emerging technologies. It includes 11 appointed physician members as well as representation from other groups, including CMS. And it also has input and expertise from 300 advisors and experts that make up the CPT Advisory Committee. The CPT Advisory Committee has specialty-specific issues. The AUA has a CPT Advisory Committee with uh, representation. And, and, and this committee also suggests revisions to CPT codes based on uh, new technology or, or uh, as things have changed throughout the years, certain CPT codes become no longer relevant. So, coding the service, what do I really do? So, in the office, I enter my own ICD-10 code. So, after seeing a patient or while I'm seeing a patient as part of my electronic health record, in fact, I can't close the encounter if I don't have, have a diagnosis code. So I answer all my own ICD-10 codes. Uh, I also, in the office, if I'm doing office procedures, enter my own CPT codes um, to ensure that they're accurate and correct. Uh, it's important to know the global. So if I'm seeing a patient back postoperatively and follow-up, it's uh, very important to uh, uh, know if the patient is within the global period, because if they are, then you you, you can't bill for a separate E&M visit, and uh, and that comes up also with with uh, minor procedures that are done in the office. For instance, an office cystoscopy has a zero day global. So that leads into the second point of what is a twenty what is a twenty five. So a 25 modifier on the day of a minor procedure, so like an office cystoscopy, so a minor procedure is really a procedure with a zero or a 10-day global. Most of these are zero-day globals. The physician may need to indicate that the patient's condition required a separate and significant E&M service above and beyond the normal preoperative and postoperative service for the procedure. So if I'm seeing a patient for blood in the urine as a new patient visit, and I, I want to do a cystoscopy on the same day, you can bill for both the cystoscopy and the E&M since they're two separate uh, services, and, and, and you can get credit for that, but you have to use a 25 modifier to do so. 
uh, to receive the, the reimbursement for both. You also have to do the, the cystoscopy procedure in a separate note, so it can't be embedded in the E&M office visit note, so two separate notes, 25 modifier. Also, uh, another thing that comes up, not a for the work you do, but certainly don't uh, abuse it or misuse it. Now, what about coding surgeries? We uh, at, at University of Wisconsin have department coders that code surgeries, uh, but I, I uh, have an interest in this, so I review all, all of the coding to make sure that it's accurate. If you work at a hospital that has coders, you also may want to periodically review this to make sure that they're coding your surgeries accurately. Uh, one thing that comes up for me and, and, and for many urologists is is, uh, is is the T transurethral resection of bladder tumor codes. There's actually three main codes. There's a small, a medium, and a large. And you only get you really can only um, bill for the the largest tumor that was resected. So if you have 10 one centimeter bladder tumors, you can only bill for a one centimeter small TURBT. You can't add them all up and say you have a 10 centimeter tumor and bill for a large. So uh, uh, so it's important to understand uh, how to how to bill and accurately code for uh, the services that you provide. Another one that comes up that you should be aware of uh, is uh, the 22 modifier, and this is for increased procedural services. So if you're doing a surgery that is technically quite challenging, that takes longer and special skill and expertise, uh, you can add this modifier to the to the surgery, and you have to have some sort of a a uh, statement in your operative notes as to why it's justifiable. So uh, one example is uh, here, this surgery was technically challenging because of extensive pelvic fibrosis from prior radiation and surgery. This required special expertise and lengthened the operation by one hour. And then once you, once you uh, enter the 22 modifier, uh, it will go into manual review and then each, each pair will have the discretion whether or not to approve it. This is also one that you should not overuse, but certainly you want to get credit for the work you do. And as we're operating on sicker patients uh, doing reoperative surgery, this is a reasonable thing to use if if the surgery is is certainly technically challenging based on uh, some of these factors. So, how does all this coding translate into payment for our services? Because at the end of the day, we all want to get credit and payment for for the work that we do. But how does how does the diagnosis and the procedures and the office visit coding um, actually get translated into dollars? And that's where the uh, the resource based relative value scale, or RVRVS, um, comes into picture. From a historical standpoint, the RVRVS is how payment for physician services are derived, and this system started back in the mid-80s at Harvard University, commissioned by President Ronald Reagan at that time. The Harvard uh, health economist took on the task of forming this study in which they surveyed lots of surgeons and physicians at that time to assess uh, how how to uh, apply the work done to some monetary value. And then in 1989, 
as part of the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, President uh, George H.W. Bush signed in a law that physician payment would then be based essentially on the RVRVS uh, that was initiated in the 80s by the Harvard Health Economists and then was subsequently enacted by uh, Medicare in 1992. And the as a payment system, what the RVRVS has done is it's created physician payments based on the resource costs to provide services with, uh, and payments have not been based on actual charges, which was a frame shift because at that time in the 80s and prior to that, physicians and practices would negotiate with insurance companies or patients even directly a certain charge or cost, and 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 and, and then they would subsequently make payments. But now uh, this was really a big frame shift at the time. Uh, so for total resource costs are really broken down into three bins. The three bins are physician work, which makes up about 48% of the cost, practice expense, which makes up the other another 48% of the cost, and then the third bin is professional liability insurance or malpractice insurance, PLI, and that makes up about 4% of the resource costs to provide physician services. So what is exactly physician work? Well, physician work is was originally based on, on the Harvard study and looked at the time required to provide a certain service, also looked at technical skill, the judgment required by the physician, mental and physical effort, as well as stress. Stress could be the liability uh, or potential harm to the patient. And over the years, because these things change with time, the physician work component gets updated on various CPT codes. And the up updating happens via largely physician surveys, which, which I'll go over in the next few slides towards the end of the talk. The second bin that I mentioned was practice expense, and that makes up another almost 50% of, of the resource payments. And what practice expense gets into is, is what does it take to run your practice? That could be clinical staff, electricity to light your rooms, exam tables, gauze, gloves, lubrication, catheters, all that goes into practice expense. And practice expense was initially based on a formula using Medicare-approved charges in the early 90s, and this has subsequently transitioned also to resource-based practice expense in 2002, along with the liability insurance, which became resource-based as well. So all components of the of the payment system became resource-based uh, since since really since 2002. So another Thing that gets brought up often is how does a relative value unit get converted to an actual dollar figure? And what this figure shows is the different, the three different bins that I mentioned. So the physician work, practice expense, and then the professional liability insurance or PLI. And each of these bins has various adjustments based on the, the geographic region. So there's a GPCI or GIPC, the geographic practice cost index. So each region has a different um, adjustment based on the geographic area. And each, each of the three bins has a different RVU. And this is uh, an example of what a level three 
992 and 3 return office visits it would look like. So the, the physician work RVU for a 992 and 3 is 0.97. So the practice expense RVU is actually higher than the physician work for a um, uh, level 3 office visit. And then the professional liability component gives you a 0.07 RVU. So you add up these RVUs and the total is a 2.14. And then the CMS or Center for Medicare Services has a conversion factor. And last year it was $35.99.96 uh, for RVU. So 2.14 times $35 equals $77.04. And that's that's what Medicare pays for a level three office visit in 2018. That conversion factor does go up typically a little bit every year to adjust for inflation. So knowing that relative value units would need updating as technology improves and medical practice changes, uh, the American Medical Association formed the RBS Update Committee, or the RUC for short, in 1991. It was really a great foresight by the American Medical Association to, to form this committee. And it was part of their First Amendment right to petition the federal government, is the logic as to why it was, was formed, but it was very insightful to form this committee at that time. The RUC is staffed by the American Medical Association and involves various specialty societies. It functions as an independent expert panel and provides annual physician RVU update recommendations to CMS. This slide shows the composition of the RUC. Urology does have, uh, has always had a seat at the table and there are 31 total members, 20, 28th of which are voting members. Two-thirds vote is required uh, to submit recommendations to CMS. The current RUC chair is Peter Smith, cardiothoracic surgeon from Duke University. The composition of the RUC is really meant to be all-inclusive for the entirety of medicine. Individual RUC members are nominated by the specialty society and subsequently approved by the American Medical Association. The RUC members are supposed to exercise individual judgment and not necessarily, well, I shouldn't say not necessarily, but they're not supposed to advocate at all really for their given specialty society. So they're supposed to use independent individual judgment in, in casting their vote. Now, the process is complicated and time-consuming, but there's a few things that I think are important to understand to help young urologists get a better sense for how reimbursement happens. And I'll try to hit the, hit the high points. So each physician service has a physician work component. There's the practice expense uh, that gets looked at for each service. There are key reference services that are, are used to compare one service to another. The, the RUC looks at uh, exp 
expected use data based on largely for newer procedures or emerging technologies. It also reviews other services that are reported on the same date to ensure that providers aren't uh, double billing for same services provided. And then looks at also potential modifier applications. And what the RUC does, it, it, it's not, it doesn't function as an advisory committee to the CMS. It's really an independent expert panel that makes recommendations, but the CMS ultimately does make its final call regarding the uh, RBRVS. Traditionally, historically, has adopted about 90% of RUC recommendations. CMS then subsequently assigns prices for wages for office staff based on market market rates, equipment, and supplies based on invoices that are provided from from uh, uh, the sale of equipment. Now, each specialty society in general has an advisory committee that reports to the RUC, and the AUA is no different. It does has has an advisory committee. And the advisory committee has several functions. The advisory committee collects data, primarily via member surveys. The advisory committee then presents the AUA recommendations to the RUC. And the advisory committee members are advocates for the AUA. That's in distinction to the, the urology RUC member the committee members are, are, are certainly able to advocate for uh, the constituents and, to, and for all the urologists in the country. The AUA Advisory Committee really couldn't function without the AUA staff, uh, including Kathy Zwarek and Stephanie Stinchcomb, who are key uh, staff members to, to help uh, the committee function at a, at a very high level. The AUA RUC team is led by the public policy chair, uh, currently Chris Gonzalez, and uh, has moved on to Loyola from Case Western. And then the AUA also has RUC members. The RUC member is Norm Smith. Dr. Smith is up in Chicago. And uh, Dr. Bill G, who's been really part of the RUC process since, since it started in the 90s, early 90s, and has really seen it uh, throughout his entire career and is still a key member of, the, of, of our team. The uh, RUC Advisory Committee includes myself, uh, Tom Turk uh, is our main uh, advisor, and then Drew Peterson from Duke. And uh, we attend all the meetings and are working hard to, to make sure that urologists are reimbursed fairly. Now, within the RUC, there are several subgroups and committees uh, one of which is called the Relativity Assessment Workgroup, or RAW for short. And people often ask me, well, how do codes uh, come up for review? And, and one of the ways is through uh, uh, this subgroup. And this subgroup functions to identify potentially misvalued services using uh, 11 different screening criteria. Um, there are some recent uh, urology examples that, that came up that I'll go over, including uh, We've recently, uh, within the past decade, reviewed open and robotic prostatectomy. Uh, cystourethroscopy has also come up uh, fairly recently. And then raw uh, misvalued codes, $1.8 billion have been redistributed within the RBRVS uh, via the, uh, the uh, screening co uh, criteria. 
and, and it's also important to note that the uh, that this is a really a budget neutral system. So if if, uh, if we can't uh, exceed uh, what's uh, in the budget, so if one code goes up, another code invariably will have to go down some. So we have to take that all into context. So um, the RUC process. Uh, here's a few examples of how really how this works. So in uh, uh, 2013, a CPT code 55840 came up for review. Open radical prostatectomy had an RVU at that time of 24.13. The uh, um, a survey was sent out to uh, urologists uh, around the country. Uh, we looked at uh, utilization. So from 2007 through 2012, approximately 2,000 to 3,000 of these procedures were performed annually. And this is specific to the Medicare population. Uh, so this is from CMS data. Only 38 urologists completed the survey. And as part of the survey, they're asked, how long does it take you to perform this service? And the median time was uh, from the survey uh, of the actual amount of time to uh, perform the operation was 180 minutes. The total time, which takes into account the time before the surgery and the time immediately on the same day after the surgery uh, was 448 minutes. And when it came up for review, um, what was done is it, it was actually compared. Uh, one of the reference services that were, was listed on the survey was CPT 50542, which is a laparoscopic renal mass ablation. It was used as a reference code. Uh, that code has, has an RVU of 21.36, and the um, times were very similar uh, between the renal mass ablation as well as the survey from the open radical prostatectomy. You'll note the intra-service time, 180 minutes, total time, 449 minutes, almost identical. When you have these similar times, the RUC oftentimes will then recommend uh, cross-walking it or using uh, this other code as a, as a reference uh, and therefore recommended um, decreasing the RVU from 24 to 21 so that the identical times, identical RVUs, uh, and that's how the process worked for open radical prostatectomy. Two years later, uh, uh, CPT 55866 was up for review uh, as part of emerging technologies, uh, robotic radical prostatectomy um, in 2015. The uh, utilization uh, data showed a much larger sample of patients in the Medicare population, so 12,000 to 15,000 procedures annually. Only 32 urologists completed this survey. And once again, the median intra-service time came back at 180 minutes, which was identical to the open radical prostatectomy survey that was done two years prior. But despite this, um, survey results, uh, the RUC actually did recommend an RVU of 26.8. But CMS, as I mentioned earlier, has the ultimate say, and they looked back and said, well, in 2013, the RVU went down for open radical prostatectomy, and the times were the same for robotic prostatectomy based on the survey data. So they disagreed with the RUC recommendation and actually set the RVU at 21.36, which was identical to the open radical prostatectomy based on the times. The AUA did, did not agree with this, and CMS was uh, 
uh, an appeal was sent from the AUA and from the AMA and CMS appeals process needs new compelling data. And fortunately, there was some emerging data from Lowe and colleagues that published in European Urology that actually looked at 630,000 men, so a huge sample size that underwent either open or robotic radical prostatectomy in the USA from 2003 to 2013. And from this real-life data, robotic radical prostatectomy was on average 90 minutes longer. So we use this data to appeal to CMS, and subsequently we were able to restore the RVU for robotic prostatectomy to 26.8 based on the appeals process. And part of the issue is that the response rates for RUC surveys, not just for urology RUC surveys, but many specialty societies are quite abysmal. And higher response rates and quality data on RUC surveys are very important so that we get a more accurate assessment of work time and value to, to make, make, make our arguments to, to the RUC to support our certain values. So how can you help? Well, if you ever uh, receive an email with a letter from the AUA to complete a RUC survey, please do it. This is a, just an example of a screenshot of uh, a letter from uh, Chris Gonzalez. We need more robust survey results to be able to report more accurate data in front of the RUC uh, to ensure fair valuation for our codes. The surveys take some time to complete, but these are actually really important surveys that can have a big impact on uh, all of urology. So in conclusion, Hopefully I've convinced you all that understanding the basics of coding is essential, especially as you begin your career. Payment for physician services, how that gets translated is complicated, but understanding some of the basics can help, help it be less intimidating. And lastly, fill out those RUC surveys. If you get those emails from, from the AUA, I know we all get bombarded with loads and loads of emails, but if you can fill those out, that would help out a lot of people. Thank you for listening to the AUA Inside Tract Podcast, an official podcast of the American Urological Association. For more information, please visit auanet.org.